we stand, let's pray together. As we've been singing, Lord, we ask you to send your spirit in our need and uh, to awaken our souls and to inspire us. We thank you that your word is as relevant today as the day it was first written and we pray you'd both show us its relevance and help us to live by it for your name's sake. Amen. Please do sit. Well, as you uh, sit down and make yourself comfortable, can I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, the reading that we had uh, just a little bit earlier in our service, Jeremiah 2, verses uh, 1 to 19. It's page 756 in the Church Bibles, page 756. And we can continue indeed that we end today in this uh, short series looking at the second chapter of Jeremiah and thinking about the spiritual decline and uh, how that happens. Jeremiah 2 Uh, 1 to 19, page 756. Very good. Our our twin girls, Susanna and Bethan, were born on the 10th of July in the year 2000. Coincidentally, they were born on the same day that another set of Williams sisters, Venus and Serena, won the Wimbledon doubles championship for the first time. And, And that's always left me dreaming dreams. Perhaps the Williams sisters, Susanna and Bethan, just perhaps they could revive British women's tennis by capturing the Wimbledon doubles crown in 2020. So as you see me dragging them across the road to the tennis club and they're kicking and screaming, yes, I'm dreaming my dreams through my children. Now, I know that's very dangerous and uh, I don't really drag them kicking and screaming. If they want to come, they do. If they don't want to come, they don't get any dinner. But there we go, there... No, really, I know it's very, very dangerous to uh, live your unfulfilled dreams through your children. Uh, But let's be honest, we all have uh, aspirations for our children. But of course, if they're right and noble desires, you know, if our greatest desire for our children and grandchildren is they grow up to follow Jesus, are committed to him, serving him, to knowing him, to winning their friends for him, to marrying a godly spouse, to help them in a lifetime of Christian service for him, Well, if that's our desire, there's nothing dangerous or unhealthy in that ambition, is there? That indeed is, uh, Caroline, and my ambition for Susanna and Bethan, and indeed for Joshua. Uh, Indeed, everything after that is just uh, little details in their lives. But I must say, as I've been reading Jeremiah and and preaching it over these uh, last couple of weeks, I do fear for our children and those that follow them. I know when I've spoken to other uh, uh, mums and dads, uh, they too are concerned about the moral deterioration in the nation. It is massively worrying. Do you wonder where it's all going to end? And then the spiritual decline in in this land is alarming. See, I wonder if there will be a faithful church in this land in future generations. Do you wonder that? Of course, some may say to me, well, yes, Paul, but Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Yes, he has promised to keep his church. There will always be a witness to Christ in his world. Nothing will finally destroy God's church. Even the full force of hell against it won't actually stop it. But that's not a promise to keep the church in Britain. The church is growing at an astonishing rate in Africa and in Asia, in South America, and of course in China. The Lord is building his church, but there is no promise that there will always be a healthy and vibrant church in Britain. And you only have to turn to the last book of the Bible to be uh, realising that. Remember the warning of the seven churches uh, in the first two 
first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Those churches that were situated in what is now modern Turkey. And you remember the warning that if they did not overcome, they would be removed. The Lord would remove their lampstand. And today, as you know, Turkey is an Islamic stronghold. Indeed, I dug out my copy of Operation World and I was shocked to read in Operation World that Turkey remains, and I quote, the largest unreached nation in the world. That the Christian population has declined from 22% to 0.2% since the year 1900. Operation World says few of the 55 million Muslims in Turkey have ever heard the gospel. And that has come about from being 22% Christian a hundred years ago. Well, with Islam on the march in Britain, who's to say that the UK could not be a Muslim nation within a hundred years? You know, I was quite struck by um, uh, an article that I was shown uh, by Melanie Phillips writing in the Daily Mail on the 7th of September. Um, And uh, she asked this question, how long will it be before Christianity becomes illegal in Britain? She says, uh, this is no longer the utterly observed and offensive question on first blush it would appear to be. And she refers to the um, evangelical campaigner Stephen Green who was arrested uh, ten days ago or so or two weeks ago for trying to peacefully hand out leaflets at a gay rally in Cardiff. We mentioned that in the pulpit last week. The decline of the church in Britain is the issue that we've been considering over the past weeks as we've studied Jeremiah chapter 2. Over the past two weeks, Jeremiah has been showing us this pattern of spiritual decline and I'm sure you'll agree, it's frighteningly contemporary. Here were a people, you see, in Jeremiah 2 who'd lost their love for the Lord. Do you remember at verse 2? I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. There was a time when Israel, like a newlywed, would go anywhere with the Lord do anything for him, traipse through the desert as long as they were with him. But now, by the time Jeremiah was called to preach them, they had forsaken the Lord and chased after other gods. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And then verse 6, they did not ask, where is the Lord? They didn't ask, where is the Lord? And we see their leaders didn't ask that. They didn't even know the Lord. Look at verse 8. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal by following worthless idols. And now this week, that was where we left it last week, this week we see in verse 9 that this once beautiful relationship between the Lord and his people has ended acrimoniously in court. Verse 9, therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. Here it's as if the Lord is taking his people to court. It's all the language of the law courts, do you see? Verse 9, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And listen to this, I will bring charges against your children's children. Now as you read that you may say to me, now, that doesn't really seem fair at all. Bringing charges against the children's children, why take it out on the children? You see, the Bible is very clear. If we don't put our house in order, our children will suffer for it. See, the way we go is the way they are likely to go. Because as all parents know, children copy. 
Our children copy us. It's desperate, isn't it? They desperately copy our faults as well as our better features. I remember a while ago when we were in the car, when Joshua was just learning to speak. I was frustrated by something the driver in front had done. And so I said, oh, come on, Captain. And a little voice from the back of the car said, come on, Captain. They just copy. Children copy. And what is true in the family is true in the church. And so what we do in this generation in the church will affect the next generation. They are very likely to copy it. Oh, that's the way we do church. That's what we believe. And so we owe it to the next generation to respond to all that we've been hearing from Jeremiah in these last weeks. For you see, and this is frightening, the battles we lose in this generation will become the norm in the next You may remember the rancour in the church over the proposed appointment of Geoffrey John to become Bishop of Reading a few years ago. The disquiet was uh, over his unbiblical view of human sexuality. A number of prominent churches in Oxford Diocese were passionate enough and impressively organised enough to fight the move and you'll remember that eventually the Archbishop of Canterbury stepped in to stop it. But you remember just months later, Geoffrey John was appointed Dean of St Albans Cathedral. And so theologically orthodox churches thought a battle had been won in seeing off his appointment as a bishop. Whereas we did in fact lose ground. Because it has now become the norm to have a man who has erroneous views on on human sexuality to be a dean of a cathedral. And now we don't make a do about it at all. It's become the norm. The battles we lose in this generation will become the norm in the next. And we will be to blame, but, verse 9, so will the next generation. Because it is for every generation of Christians to return to the Bible, to have the Bible direct our decisions and actions. We can't, you see, we in this generation can't blame previous generations and say, oh, well, you know, it's become the norm. No, we have a responsibility to return to the Bible and to put right all those things that are wrong. And so, verse 9, the Lord brings his charge against the current generation and the next, if they go the same way. And so, we must stand up to wrong practice in the church today, for our sake and also for the sake of our children and future generations. You see, that was what didn't happen in Jeremiah's day. And what was the Lord's primary evidence for his case against his people as he takes them to court? How does the Lord open the case for the prosecution? Well, he does it by taking the court on some travels. He gets them to travel to to a scene of incriminating evidence. Look at verse 10. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Kittim, the islands in the west known today as Larnaca in Cyprus. I wouldn't be at all surprised if some have been there. Uh, To Israel, who, remember, were not a seafaring nation, these islands in the west were effectively the most westerly point they knew. So the Lord says in verse 10, cross to Kittim, go as far west as you know. And then, verse 10, go to Kedar. Kedar was in the east and in the desert. Now today, of course, you can hop on a plane and fly from Kittim to Kedar in just a few hours. But as Jeremiah wrote, these were the farthest limits of their known world. So the Lord says to his people, Go to the ends of the earth and look, verse 10. Observe closely. 
And he says in verse 10, the evidence you, you will see will incriminate you. See verse 10, see if there has ever been anything like this. Implication, you can look all over the world and you won't find anything like this. What is this thing? What is so extraordinary and unusual? What is this unusual sight they're going to see? Well, the Lord asked them, verse 11, as you go to the extremes of the world, verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. Look all over the world, says the Lord. Can you find a single heathen nation that has changed its gods, even though they are no gods? So you'd have thought that nations that do not follow the Lord, nations that, that follow idols, nations whose gods are no gods, you'd have thought that in time they'd change to follow other gods because they'd realise their gods don't work. But no. They carry on faithfully following their gods. But, verse 11, my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. It's a devastating moment in Jeremiah chapter 2, isn't it? Derek Kidner writes this, we have the spectacle in our own time of whole nations blindly loyal to their religious, to their own religions and ideologies. See, as we look at other nations, do they want to ditch their God? No, on the contrary, they flaunt their gods at us. Islam is militant, unashamedly trying to get people to follow their no God. They're not neutral, they are trying to get people to follow them. They are angry indeed, indeed it is not politically correct to speak in these terms, especially this week. They are angry when people expose their religion as bringing to the world only evil and inhumane things. They protect their no-God and their so-called prophet. It's a challenge to us, isn't it, to see if we're bothered when we hear things against our God, the true one living God. But you see, verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods? But, verse 11, my people exchange their glory for worthless idols. It's incriminating evidence and it's a devastating question to ask the British Isles. Uh, listen again to, to Melanie Phillips from earlier this week, this um, article in the Daily Mail. Uh, now, I don't know Melanie Phillips, but I'm told that she's not a Christian herself. In fact, somebody tells me she's Jewish, but um, I only offer that. I'm not absolutely sure whether that's true or not. She says this, the Bible is the moral code that underpins our civilization. She says, Christianity is still the official religion of this country. All its institutions, its history, its culture are suffused with it. Britain would lose its identity, its values and its cohesion without it. Uh, and she says this, this attack on Christianity is not merely a threat to freedom of speech and religious expression. It is a fundamental onslaught on the national identity and bedrock values of this country. See, Christianity is indeed the bedrock of our society. We probably just take it for granted now and don't even realise it, but law, education, medicine, the social and educational structures and behaviour of our nation all have their roots and principles in Christian truth. For me, I believe the reason Great Britain was great was because of our Christian heritage. Yet we have exchanged what was glorious about us and we've chased after worthless idols, verse 11. See, as a nation, we have ignored the Bible and chased after sex and leisure and materialism and hedonism, political correctness, human rights, we could go on and on. Verse 11 is a devastating question then to ask the British Isles, isn't it? 
But it is even more a devastating question to ask the Church of England, which is the re- really the primary parallel we should draw, draw in this chapter. For Jeremiah is speaking to the people of God here. The Lord says in verse 11, My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. See, what makes the church glorious is the Lord. As soon as we turn away from him, we're not glorious at all. In fact, the church becomes quite pathetic when it turns away from the Lord. And uh, here he says in verse 11, when we exchange him for anything else, we become worthless, chasing after worthless idols. But as we've seen over these past weeks so painfully, this is what the church has done in this land. As God's people turn from the Lord in Jeremiah's day, then we see the Lord turn to the heavens and the stars and the planets as the jury in the case against his people. Look what he says in verse 12. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. You see, I think this is the way verse 11 and 12 works. In verse 11 we see we have exchanged our glory, the people of God turned away from the glory, And because the psalmist tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, so the Lord turns to something that does declare his glory, the heavens. So he turns to the cosmos, the stars, the planets. And as in verse 12 he turns to the stars and the planets, he says, what do you think of these creatures on earth? What do you make of humans who know me and then turn away from me? And look at the strength of the words in verse 12. Be appalled. Shudder. Be horrified. What a terrible thing to turn away from the Lord. Indeed, we see here in verse 12, it is the most appalling thing that can happen in the universe. We may see all sorts of things on, on, in our newspapers and on our television sets on the news that are appalling, and I'm not saying they're not, but this is the most appalling thing when people turn away from the Lord. And yet that is what we've all done. And that is why we all need the gospel. Now let me say as I say this, there's no smugness from the pulpit. There's no sense of self-righteousness from me. We've all done this appalling thing. Turning from the Lord, turning to idols. Every human who ever walked this planet has done that. But do you see how appalling this thing is? When we've tasted how good it is to know the Lord when we've experienced the forgiveness that he offers through his grace, when we've known him and loved him and experienced his glorious protection, how terrible it is then to forsake him. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. That's disgusting. And Jeremiah here says, verse 13, it is the essence of sin. That's what he calls it. Verse 13, my people have committed two sins, They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's a very powerful image, isn't it? To turn away from the Lord is to turn away from clear, life-giving water and to drink instead muddy gunge that cannot begin to quench our thirst. The imagery of this verse probably doesn't have the same impact on us that it would have had on the people of Jeremiah's day. We are not desperate for water. Most of the time we're longing for it to stop raining. We are very fickle, aren't we? It's amazing. It was too hot in July. We complained about the rain in August. What are we like? 
But if we lived in an arid, dry country as Israel did, we would so appreciate and value fresh, clean water. For Israel, the the clear waters that flowed down from Lebanon and Syria was the life of the country. Without those springs of living water, they would die. One of the best uh, holidays we've uh, ever had was was in the Canadian Rockies uh, as we uh, landed in... um, in Vancouver and then drove across into the Rockies. It was quite a long drive, but an amazing sight. As we uh, went into the Rockies, we had the most wonderful weather, day after day of sun beating down upon us. And yet, on hot boiling day after hot boiling day, as we went into the mountains, there was always clear, clean, refreshing waters cascading over the amazing waterfalls, rushing down through the rivers and down the mountainside as the glaciers melted. And it was so refreshing to be near those waters. Spiritually, that is what we have when we know the Lord. And Israel had known that, but they'd committed two sins. The first sin, they turned away from the Lord, the source of life-giving and thirst-quenching water. How ridiculous is that? Why go anywhere else when you've drunk of him? See, Jesus is the only one who can quench our thirst for life. We may look in all sorts of other places, but Jesus is the only one who can actually quench our thirst for life. Why would we want to turn away from him? Look, keep your uh, finger or your your service sheet in in Jeremiah 2 and and come with me to John chapter 7, if you will, just to see how Jesus picks this up. Page 1072 is the page number. John chapter 7 and verse 37. Page 1072, 1072, John 7, and verse 37 to 39. See, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And you notice verse 37, Jesus said, come to me. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, come to church, or become religious, or keep rules. He says, come to me. Religion won't quench your thirst. Keeping rules won't quench your thirst. Only Jesus can do that. I I went to church for years. Years. And it never left me satisfied. As a 20 year old, I I had everything I ever wanted. Not everything that other people have all got, but everything I ever wanted. At 20, I had my own flat, a company car, a job with prospects. That was all I ever wanted and I'd got them all. I had everything, but I had nothing. I wasn't a depressed or miserable guy. I enjoyed life, but life didn't quench my thirst. Materialism didn't, hedonism didn't. And many of you will know that too for yourself. Sex doesn't quench your thirst all the time. You just want more of these things. Now listen to these words from Jason Robinson. Jason Robinson uh, is a rugby player. He was part of the uh, victorious uh, England Rugby World Cup squad. Uh, We have to keep uh, making ado about that, of course, because they're not going to be very victorious for much longer. Uh, Not be world champions for much longer anyway. But here we go. This is Jason Robinson. He's a Christian. But this is before he was a Christian. 
When I was going out clubbing and drinking, it didn't satisfy the hunger inside me, he says. You can try to satisfy the hunger with relationships or material things, but they're only a quick fix. Okay, you can buy a nice car, but then you immediately want a better one. It doesn't seem to matter how much money people have, they always want more. The same with relationships. He says this, you always think the grass is greener on the, on the other side. Well, it may be greener, but it still needs mowing. I like that line. At 21, he says, I had, all, all, I had it all. Success, money, fast car, nice house, but I had nothing. Absolutely nothing. I come home from training and feel empty. I knew people were looking at me in my BMW convertible and thinking, Jason Robinson's doing very well. Well, we can all put on a good show. But I was lonely. See, you can have everything and have nothing. And I want to ask you this morning, have you drunk the living water that comes from Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? There's no other way to quench your thirst. And the amazing thing is, when you drink from him, your life in turn will affect others. You see, I'd never seen this until this week. John 7 verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. If you look on to verse 39, you'll see he's referring to the Holy Spirit. But isn't that striking? When my thirst is quenched... My life will be so transformed that people will be able to come to me and drink from my life and witness. Because streams of living water will flow out from within you and me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 39. And indeed, I think it's a great test of whether we've really come to Jesus or not. Whether our life is flowing over into others that they too can drink from us and meet the source of living water. There will be people here today who are thirsty. People for whom you realise life just isn't satisfying. Oh, you pursued your career materially, you've got everything in relationships, maybe you've gone through one after another and there's always something missing. You're always left thirsty. Like the woman at the well, do you remember her earlier in John chapter 4? One sexual encounter after another, always leaving her thirsty, always wanting something different. Nothing ever satisfies. Of course, turn your back on the Lord and you turn your back on the only source of thirst-quenching water. And we've all done that. What is so desperate is when the people of God have enjoyed that thirst-quenching spring of living water and then they decide to drink dirty, muddy gunge. Let's turn back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 and we'll see that's the second sin in Jeremiah 2. See verse 13, my people have committed two sins. The first sin, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. The second, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Archaeologists tell me that these things are very uh, common in archaeological digs, these cisterns. It's almost as if people dug out huge reservoirs, uh, but they were porous, the rock was, and uh, they just uh, went straight through. And inevitably, any water that was left in them would be the colour of dishwater, would taste of the stable, and the bottom of the pot would be full of worms. Now, it's what we see in our television sets when a, a humanitarian disaster hits, hits a country. You know, the, the pictures are terrible, aren't they? We see people drinking water that we wouldn't wash our car with. 
And they drink it because they have no choice. They are dying of thirst and there's no other water to be found. There's no, we don't blame them. There's no clean water. And yet, here are God's people with all the clean water they want, refusing the crystal clear water of following Jesus and choosing instead to drink muddy gunge in broken cisterns. It's a vivid picture of the church when it has turned away from the Lord. And if the first sin is to turn away from the Lord, the second is to to turn to man-made religion. That's the broken system. That's what these people had done. You see, they turned to other religion. They turned to man-made religion. Verse 5. What fault did your forefathers find in me? They strayed so far from me. That's the first sin. The second sin, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They turned to religion. And please this morning, and for the rest of your lives, do distinguish between following Jesus and being religious. Somebody said to me on Friday, I'm not religious. And I said to him, nor am I. And he couldn't understand what I was saying. But you're a vicar. You see, the point is this, dead, dry religion gives us no way of quenching our thirst at all. You see, dead, dry religion, when the church is all about rules and regulations... When it's driven by duty and not joy. It doesn't give life, it cramps you, it leaves people miserable, it satisfies no one's thirst. When I was growing up, Sunday was the unhappiest day of the week in our house. Now let me say, I was was brought up in a wonderfully loving and supportive home. And I don't want to knock that at all. But when we went to church, when we got home, there was always an unpleasant atmosphere in the house. That's what religion does for you. See, at the church we went to, we never heard the the joy of knowing Jesus personally. It's all about rules. And if you just try and keep rules, you'll be miserable as anything. And it's not only desperately sad when the church is like that, it's desperately wicked. It is sin, verse 13. It is sinful because when the church is like that, it leads no one to the Lord... No one comes to the source of living water. That is why it's so wicked. Now that is why we must fight against churches that have gone that way. See, may the Lord rescue us from ever becoming like that, us. And may the Lord have mercy on this nation from ever losing its Christian witness. What will our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren have as a witness We can't just leave it to others. We have to fight. We have to stand up for the truth. Otherwise there will be no witness in this land in a hundred years' time. Maybe we shall be in Operation World as a nation which is so unchristian or so Muslim that they are sending missionaries to us and can't even get them in through the doors. Could that happen? Yes, it could. We have to fight. Well, it's been sobering to consider Jeremiah chapter 2 over these past weeks, hasn't it? I think I may have said last week, I think you can only spend a few weeks in Jeremiah before you need to go somewhere else to be encouraged. He's very honest with us. And uh, next week we'll be looking at the Psalms and we'll probably be quite relieved to have encouragement from the Psalms. Well, that's good to do that as well. But as we move on, as we leave Jeremiah behind, may it be that we never forget all that he's taught us. Let's pray together.
we've sung it and now we've heard it, Lord, we've committed two sins. And every other sin flows out of these two, forsaking you and then turning to other gods. We ask your forgiveness. Uh, we pray that you would uh, shake us up, make us uh, courageous and bold to stand up for you in this nation for the sake of the future, for the sake of our children and their children. Help us to know what we can do, both as individuals and as a church family. And may we not be found wanting in years to come. For your praise and glory. Amen. Well, we do ask the Lord.